Thank you, Steve. I want to invite our children to Children's Church. And I want to warn everybody, it's winter time, and there's a lot of sickness going around, so wash your hands. <laughs> Steve gave me a good reminder, don't use the antibacterial stuff, because it kills 99% of, of the, uh, the viruses you get on your hands, the bacteria and stuff, right? You don't have to worry about the 99%. That's that one that survives. That's the one that's going to get you. So um, the better answer is to just wash your hands. Um, when we sang that song and Ramey was saying, the Lord is just pleased to hear us say, you can take it all. Just give me more of Jesus. It reminded me from Luke where Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He delights to give you the kingdom. It makes him happy to give you more of himself. So uh, with that in mind, let's pray and then we'll turn to the word. Lord, we do want that. We want more of you. We want more of Jesus. We want more of the Holy Spirit. We want more of the Father. Lord, this world throws up barricades. It throws up confusion. It throws up um, lies and offers of other things that try to supplant the joy that we can only find in you. And so, Lord, we cry out, would you give us more of yourself? Please send more of yourself. Help us to see more of yourself. Help us to walk more in line with what you say about who you are. And, Lord, in, in gaining Jesus, we don't lose a thing. Instead of gaining this fallen, broken, deceitful, temporary world, Lord, as we gain Jesus, we gain this world made right when he returns. We gain this world set the way it should be in the new heavens and the new earth. So, Lord, would you give us more of you, not so that we lose, but so that we gain what infinitely cannot be touched. And thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for the, the gift of the reminder of singing that song together. Uh, Lord, I want to pray especially for our folks who are sick today, uh, those of our congregation who aren't here, who are uh, feeling uh, the cold and flu season kick in. Um, Father, I pray for all of us that you would strengthen us against this illness, that you would help us to war against um, sickness, which is a product of the fall. It's not a design feature in the world. It is a flaw that we invited in. And so, Lord, would you help us to war against those things and, and grant healing? Um, Jesus, you, you said that you would come and you'd bring healing. And so we pray for healing for those who aren't with us today. And in, in some measure, Lord, would you meet with them uh, today and remind them of the grace that they have in Jesus Christ? Lord, we ask that you'd be now with us as we turn to your word. Lord, we need you. We, we can't grasp all that you have to say to us through natural processes because sin has stained every aspect of our, our body, every aspect of who we are, reason, will, emotions. We need you, Holy Spirit. So would you set us free? Would you open your word to us, help us to see and to understand so that we would see more of Jesus, so that we would want more of Jesus, and so that we would gain more of Jesus? We ask in his name for his church and for his glory. Amen. So here's where we're at. End of chapter 14. How many chapters are there in that book of Acts? 28. Guess what that means? We're halfway through. Isn't that something? That's, that's math, folks. That's, that's mathematics. Um, what, that, what that means is we're going to finish chapter 14 today, and then it, it actually is kind of a wrapping up point in the book. It kind of ends this one section. Then we're going to go through Advent. So all of December, we'll take a break and we'll go look at some Psalms that talk about Jesus. And then when uh, the new year comes, we'll start back 
on uh, the book of Acts. We'll start on chapter 15, so we'll go into the second half. And uh, so that's kind of where we're at. That's where we're going. We're at the end of chapter 14. We're also at the end of Paul's first missionary journey, his first trip out to bring the gospel to the nations. We've come to the end of it. And so if you listened when, when Steve was reading, it sounded like a wrapping up, didn't it? He just kind of goes through this and this and this and this and this. But I want to tell you what this section is about is it's about disciples. And I'm so happy to get here because my theory is that the book of Acts is about disciples making disciples. And I've been waiting for it, and we finally got it. So I feel justified now. And uh, so that's, that's all I'm going to do is kind of you know, prove that I was right. If I do, fire me, okay? <laughs> that's, that's not what a sermon should be, is proving I'm right. What we want to do is go and hear what, what the Lord has to say. So the beginning of this starts with Jews coming from Antioch and Iconium and persuading the crowds and stoning Paul. And it kind of fits with what came last week, which was the opposition to the gospel. But it does fit with this week as well, because it says that after they did that, the disciples gathered around him. So it talks about the disciples again. And so I figured it'd just be better to do this here and then make sure that we tie it into last week with that opposition to the gospel. So can you throw this, the, the map up? Um, busier map than we usually have. Um, I try to keep stripping everything out, but this one, there's a lot of places mentioned because he wraps up his journey. So, oh, it didn't get put in? Oh, yeah, I don't think I uploaded it. So there's a map. Imagine in your mind <laughs> this great map that I created. Actually, most of what we, we're going to talk about today, we've already been there. We're not introducing really any new places. There's one new place, but it's really down by the coast, and it's really fairly insignificant. So um, we'll just let the map slide, and you guys won't remember this, right? This won't come up in my yearly review or anything. Um, so some Jews come from Antioch and Iconium. <clears throat> Antioch was way on the other side of that, the, uh, that dotted line in the map, if you remember that. That's about 60 miles. It's a pretty good hike. And Iconium is a pretty good hike away from uh, Lystra, which is where they're at. So these Jews come, and they get there. They persuade the crowds that Paul is a problem, and then they stone him. So does that sound a little bit familiar? Didn't somebody else travel a good distance to go arrest people and throw them in jail because they were believing in Jesus? This is exactly what Paul did when he was heading to Damascus, is he intended to go and grab people who were following Jesus and arrest them. And so that's not unheard of that these Jews would travel that far to oppose Paul. It's not out of line that they would, they would be so angry about his message that they would come after him. And it says they stoned Paul. They persuaded the crowds and they stoned Paul. Um, when it says they stoned Paul, I think it's speaking about the Jews because Romans typically didn't stone people. Early on when Rome was established, which would have been in the 400 BCs or so, um, they did stone people. But it fell out of favor. It wasn't something that they typically did. I read one person had said that the military would stone people as well, but there was really no reference, no um, like parameters for it. So as far as I understand it, as, as I was looking through this, stoning was a, a fairly Jewish way of punishing somebody. And so that's what they did was they, they would go and grab Paul. And I think the Jews came and said, this man is a Jew. He's causing problems. He's going to stir up problems in your city. You need to let us take care of this. And so they drag him out and they stone him. So they, they do this with the authority of the city that Paul is opposed. Why would they stone Paul? Why wouldn't they just have him arrested? 
Well, I think what's going on here is this is how you dealt with heretics in, in Judaism. According to Deuteronomy 13, this is verses 1 through 5, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or a wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he taught rebellion against the Lord your God. So you will purge the evil from your midst. So I think this is what the Jews had in mind is this Jesus is coming along and he's telling us to not obey Moses. And instead, he's telling us to follow this Jesus who rose from the dead, who's supposed to be this Messiah. He's introducing us to a false god. And so they go and they punish him. They go out and they, they stone him to death. In their view, it says they supposing, supposing he was dead, they drug him out of the city. Now, one of the things that I'm finding kind of interesting in this missionary journey is this harkens back to something that happened earlier as well, doesn't it? You remember how it began? They left Antioch. And Luke really quickly tells the story of them sailing to Cyprus and heading across Cyprus and then getting to Paphos, and they run into what? Elamis. And who is he? A Jewish false prophet. Did the Jews rise up and try to stone him? No. He was powerful. He was connected with the, the proconsul. They didn't bother stoning him, but Paul shows up, and they suppose that he's a false prophet because he's talking about Jesus is the Messiah, and so they decide to stone him instead. They rejected the truth of the gospel. And, and did Paul base it just on what he thought or, or like um, you know, his persuasive speech or anything? When we looked at the beginning of chapter 14, his message that he preached, it was all rooted in scripture. This scripture proves it. This scripture proves it. This scripture proves it. And the people still reject it. And so since they reject him, they take him out and they stone him. Now, it says, supposing he was dead, they drug him out of the city. Was he dead? I used to think he was. I thought, this, this, is, this is significant. He's dead and he's resurrected. Um, does it say that? Now, I've had to repent. It doesn't say that he was dead. It says the crowds who stoned him supposed he was. So if he was dead, wow, here's a resurrection that happens. And if he wasn't dead then, oh my gosh, can you imagine what condition he was in after they stone him to the point where he's out, they think he has expired? He must have been in really bad shape. Whatever it was, this stoning was pretty horrific. And so they drag him out of the city and they dump his body and they head back in. They've accomplished their mission. They've eliminated the, uh, the false prophet from their midst. They've, they've done their job. But the disciples gather around him. And as the disciples gather around him, he stood up and he rose up. And almost sounds like a resurrection, um, but almost. It's not quite clear exactly what was going on. There's another edition of the book of Acts called the Western Text. And uh, the Western Text is about 10% bigger than the text that we use for the book of Acts. And it includes a lot more little details here and there. Um, there is no modern translation I know of that goes with the Western Text. It's, it's pretty much well understood to be not authentic what Luke wrote. The simpler text, the, the tighter one, the more Luke, Lucan, Lucian text is the one that we base ours on. In the Western text, what it says is the church gathered around him and helped him stand up and then aided him to walk into the city because he stood up with great difficulty and he went into the city. Um, so that sounds like, at least in that Western textual tradition, it wasn't a resurrection. They recognized that he was, he was badly injured. Um, and what does Luke do? 
or what does uh, Paul do? He gets up and he heads out of town. He heads right back into the city where they just stoned him. Now, why is that? Is that just because he's tenacious and he is going to, you know, not take guff from anybody and, and he's a tough guy? No, the man was just stoned and left for dead. Where's he going to go? <laughs> is he going to walk three days to the next town? He went back to the city because he is in bad shape and he needed to be taken care of. So the church gathers around him. The disciples gather around him. They help him back into the city and they nurse him overnight. They're dealing with his wounds. Can you imagine what Paul looked like? With stoning, what you do is you find big stones and you hurl them at the person. And you're, you're trying to hit them in the head. You're trying to break their bones. You're trying to, to, to crush them to death one stone at a time. It's a horrible way to die. That was what was happening to the man. And so when he stood up the next day and walked out of the town, he must have been black and blue from head to foot. He must have been in horrible shape. When I was a little boy, there was a neighborhood bully who got a new pair of cowboy boots for Christmas. And he decided to dress those toes on my face. And so he beat me up and kicked me in the face until my face was black and blue. I saw a picture of me. I was black and blue from here up with those, those cowboy boot things. And I imagine that's what Paul looked like all over only probably worse, because these were stones hitting him. So there's probably lacerations on top of it. He's practically a dead man walking at that point. But he gets up, and he goes into the city, and they take care of him. And the next day, it says he and Barnabas went off to Derby. So even though he's been beat up so badly, he walks the next couple of days to get to Derby. So it says they went off. It doesn't mean that they arrived that same day. It was probably about a two- or three-day walk. It was about 30 miles between the two. And so they head off. Notice that Barnabas wasn't stoned. Barnabas wasn't even mentioned until they leave. Why is that? Um, probably because he wasn't around. He was probably doing something else. Maybe he was talking to some disciples and get ready for the next part of the journey. Because he didn't just get up and go. Like, we hop in the car and drive to the next city over. No big deal, right? This was a three-day walk. You didn't just get up and go. You had to prepare. So maybe Barnabas is getting stuff ready for that. Um, whatever it was... What we know from previous parts of this section is Paul was the primary speaker. You remember last week they wanted to offer sacrifices to him thinking he was, he was um, uh, the, the prime speaker. They called Barnabas Zeus and they referred to uh, Paul as Hermes, the speaker of the group. They thought that's who he was. So he was probably the primary speaker, so that's why they go after him. And so that's what happens is, is he's, he's stoned and he's left for dead, but the disciples gather around him and they... He rises up and he leaves the next day, takes off, and he goes to Derby. So when he gets to Derby, what does he do? It says, when they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So Paul goes into the city and he's preaching. Don't forget, this man. have you ever gotten a bruise and then it doesn't really show up for a couple of days? Or you get a bruise and it's there and then it gets worse after a couple of days. As it's healing, the, the broken blood vessels begin to darken and stuff. I imagine by the time he got to Derby, he looked horrible. He would have been severely beaten. And so when he gets there, he begins to preach the gospel. He's telling people about Jesus. Picture the impact of that. What you've just been, why do you look like that? You've been stoned and you're still here talking about it? Paul is coming in and he's, he's, demonstrating, he's physically demonstrating to them the value of knowing Christ. It's, it's worth being stoned nearly to death. And it's worth it to me to then come and tell you about it. So he's got not only his powerful words that we heard earlier, now he's got this physical representation of this is the cost of discipleship and it's worth every penny. And what's the result of that? They had made many disciples. 
They didn't just get a couple. They had made many disciples in Derby. And, and now what happens is Luke kicks the narrative into high gear and we just kind of fly. After they had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, then to Iconium, then to Antioch. That was probably a week, a week and a half, two weeks worth of travel. But they fly right through it because Luke is wrapping up his story. But he wants to remind us of where they're going. So if you remember the map, Lystra and Derby were kind of down on that side. And it would have made sense if Paul was in a big hurry to get home. He could have just continued in that direction. He could have continued east and wound up in Tarsus, his own home. Would have been right along that same road. He could have gone to Tarsus. He could have healed. He could have recuperated. And then it wasn't that long of a, a trip from Tarsus around the horn of the corner of the Mediterranean Sea back to Antioch. He could have continued overland, but he didn't. Where did he go? He went back exactly the same route he had come. And I don't think it's accidental that Luke points up points out that the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and that Paul traveled from Iconium back to Antioch. In the face of the opposition, he's going back to visit the disciples. He's going back to uh, visit the people he had left behind. So verse 22 says uh, that he did that journey, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. So that was his, his point was not, how fast can I get home? His point was, I have gone through these cities, I have preached the gospel, and these folks need to be encouraged because they're going to face opposition as well. And so he goes back, he's, he's, his mission is not complete simply to make dis, uh, convert converts. His commission is make disciples. And so he wants to go back and connect with those disciples, those people who have said, I'm trusting Jesus. Jesus is my master. He has shown me the way to eternal life, and I'm going to walk in life according to his plan. That's a disciple and a master relationship. And now he wants to go back into those people that he told about Jesus and say, continue on in that. He, he encourages them to continue in the faith. And sometimes when we hear the, the word the faith, I don't know if you ever hear it. Maybe it's more of a technical term. Often it's thought of as a body of doctrine, the faith. These, these truths that we believe is sometimes referred to the faith or a church tradition might be referred to as a faith. None of that really exists at this point. When he talks about encouraging them to continue in the faith, he's saying to them, opposition is going to come. Continue to trust in Jesus. Continue to believe in Jesus. Put your hope in him and don't move. And so he's strengthening them and he's encouraging them to continue in that way. And he says, and this, I think, really is the heart of this section. He says that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, at this point, he may have been healed. Uh, the bruises might have been mostly gone. But can you imagine that message when he's in Lystra a few days later, still bruised and says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It just is such a poignant picture. So let's take that phrase apart for a second. What do we mean by tribulations? What a tribulation is, it, the, the root of the word has to do with, with pressing in or containing. Um, but words change meaning. It doesn't mean that that's all it meant. It means this opposition, this external pressure, this pushing away through tribulations, physical pressure, emotional pressure, social pressure, this, this constant push saying, go away from the faith. Through many tribulations, we must. Our tribulation's optional. We must enter the kingdom of God. So the, 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 the wonderful message that we're receiving here is, here's the promise we can make for you. It's going to be hard. Follow Jesus Christ, and it's going to be hard. 
through many tribulations, not few, but many. Also, I want to point out real quick, your tribulations may vary. Your actual tribulations may vary. Do you notice who got stoned and who did not? Paul got stoned. Did all the disciples get stoned? No, they surrounded him after he got stoned. Did Barnabas get stoned? No, they, he did not. He wasn't around. He helped Paul on the way to, to, um, to uh, Derby after it was over. So if you're not stoned this week, if somebody doesn't come up and hurl rocks at you because you believe in Jesus Christ, it's okay. Your tribulation may look very different than Paul's did. Paul was called to a unique ministry that we may not share. Then again, you might get stoned. Somebody may throw something at you. You never know. Look at our brothers and sisters in China. What's happening to them right now? We tend to turn a blind eye because we do a lot of business with China. China is bulldozing churches, knocking them down. China is dragging all the stuff out of a church into a square and burning it, including Bibles, including pews. China right now is arresting pastors and worship leaders and throwing them in jail for a couple of weeks just because they can. Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. There is, at times, great oppression, great resistance to the church, to the gospel. What Paul is telling us, what Luke is telling us, what Jesus is warning us about is expect it. Don't be surprised when it comes your way. Why am I suffering like this? Because through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? This is, this is one of my favorite topics. You're going to get sick of me saying it because I'm going to go over it and over and over it because it's a confused issue. Is the, is the church the kingdom of God? Through many tribulations, you must enter the church. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to people who have already put their hope and trust in Jesus Christ. They are called disciples. So it's not, by the way, you're going to suffer to enter the church. The church is part of the kingdom of God. It doesn't exhaust it. Um, one of the commentaries I read said, well, you know, normally it's this, but in this case, he's talking about the es eschaton, the final state, the eternal position of being with God in heaven forever. Anybody see that here? I'm not getting any of that. So I'm thinking, well, then what is the kingdom of God? What the kingdom of God is, is God's sovereign rule upon this earth. It is coming into alignment with what God actually wants to be happening on this earth, not what sin is producing on this earth. So the kingdom of God is God's authority here. We talked about this in Luke because in Luke, he tells a parable about a man who goes off to receive a kingdom. So he goes to a foreign land and he receives a kingdom and then he comes back to a land and a people to rule over them. So if kingdom is a rule of people, a, a church, a, a geographical area, then why did he go away to receive the kingdom? He was already standing in it. What he received was the authority to rule over those things. So that's what I think the kingdom of God means. Why is it then that we will face much tribulation to enter the kingdom of God? To come under God's sovereign rule to say God actually is accomplishing something in this world. Why is it that we would face such huge tribulation for us to do that? It's not like we have to burn the city down in order to come in there. What we have to do is we have to submit to the real truth that Jesus died for our sins and that God really is sovereign and that's where our hope is. The reason that we face such tribulation is because there's three enemies, three enemies that the Bible speaks of that hate this idea. The first one is Satan. Satan is actually opposed 
to people becoming followers of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to reassure you that he doesn't care a rip about you. It's nothing personal against you. It's personal between he and God. That's not good news, folks, because he doesn't care what happens to you. He really doesn't care. All he wants to do is make sure that God loses. And so he's going to oppose God. He's opposed to you coming into God's kingdom. And he doesn't care how you do it. It doesn't, it's not like he wants your soul so he can torment you in hell. He's going to be tormented in hell as well. He just wants to make sure you don't go. So you've got Satan as this opponent saying, I don't want you to go into the kingdom of God, period. Now, Satan is a fallen angel. He's a created being. He does not share with God ubiquity. $8 seminary word, right? Ubiquity, omnipresence. Satan is not everywhere in the world all at the same time. Only God is present throughout all of creation. There's no place we can go from him. Satan has to be in one location at one time. Now, he's a spiritual being, so he doesn't have the restriction of having to travel a distance and it takes a while to get there. He can move between places, but he can't be at two places at once. So Satan might not be your opponent. He may not be the spirit that's opposing you entering the kingdom. It's okay. He's got plenty of minions. There, there are a number of angels that fell with him, and he will dispatch one of them to oppose you. So that's the first enemy you face. But what if they're all busy? What if they've you know, got something major going on and they're all busy? Well, then I'm free, right? I don't have any opponents. No, you fall to the second opponent. The second opponent the Bible refers to as the world. And what the world is, is an opponent to you entering the kingdom of God, is it's just, this is just the way things are. This is just how things are. This is the way the world operates. Of course you don't want to follow God, your, your invisible friend in the sky. Why would you follow him? You can have all of this right now. You don't have any guarantee that that's going to happen. That's all just myth and story. That's something that some old man told you. You can't trust that. That's the world's opposition. And again, the world doesn't really care about you. There's, there's no personal engagement with that. It's just this is the way things are. Surely you should go this way. So the, the, Satan will oppose you if, if he thinks that you need opposition. The world will just naturally grind away that way. So here's where tribulations come from. Satan is going to oppress you. He's going to, he's going to fight in difficult ways. He's going to scare you because he thinks he's all-powerful and he's not. The world is going to lie to you and say, oh, this is, this is great. You can have it all now. Why wait? The world is going to oppose you. And then the worst part, and this is where it gets personal, finally. The Bible refers to our flesh. Now, it doesn't mean this physical junk we walk around with. The flesh is synonymous with the fallen nature, the fact that we are sinful, that our hearts, our minds, our will, our emotion are all broken by sin will naturally bend you away from wanting to enter the kingdom of God. So those are our three enemies that oppose you. So if Satan is going to trouble you, he, he has, he's powerful. He's referred to as a lion who wanders around and, and tries to intimidate and scare people, growling at them. The world is going to just constantly shout in your ears, oh, no, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And then the bad news is your, your flesh, your fallen human nature is, is bent to go that direction. And those are our three enemies. That's why there is tribulation to enter the kingdom of God. It is difficult to overcome those spiritual, natural, and personal forces that are opposing you entering the kingdom of God. It's hard to do. It's a regular fight. You have to fight for it. So Paul's warning that, through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of God. For him, it was a physical 
beating that he had to take. For other believers, it might be any number of things, personal, in, in, in a worldly setting. It might even be spiritual opposition. That's, that's the bad news. The good news is, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. You must enter the kingdom of God. Jesus has called us. He's going to lead us to that direction. He's going to bring us that way. So what it says here is that Paul used that message to strengthen the souls of the disciples. This was not bad news intended to scare them so that they'd form a little holy huddle and build an enclave somewhere out in the, in the wilderness and never be seen by anybody and then they could be holy and perfect together. Instead, he says, this is good news. And it says that it strengthened the souls of the disciples. Remember last time the souls of somebody was mentioned? When they got to Antioch, the Jews became jealous because they saw all the Gentiles getting excited. And so they poisoned the souls of the Gentiles. So while the Jews are poisoning, Paul comes back and he strengthens. He wants them to remain strong. He, he encourages them to remain strong. And then the last thing that he does on this trip as he's going through these churches that he started, it says in verse 23, and they appointed elders for them in every church. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord whom they had believed. So they, they go back and they encourage them with these words, they strengthen with them words, and then they, commit, they, they appoint elders. Now, a little side note here on church polity. <clears throat> polity is a fancy word for saying how does a church rule itself. There's, there's three basic, if you boil them down, there's three basic approaches to how a church rules itself. The first one is called uh, congregationalism. And that's where the congregation is part of the leadership and is involved in the leadership of the church. Um, the people are asked for input. The people are in, engaged in, involved in the decisions that the church makes. The second one is called Presbyterianism. And it comes from that word for elder here. The word elder in Greek is prispitos. And what it means is old person, old man. But a presbyter, in a Presbyterian setting, the congregation isn't really part of the leadership. The, the elders lead. The elders make the decisions. And in classic Presbyterianism, you'd get a group of elders with another group of elders. And so you'd get a regional group of uh, elders together who would make decisions and, and decide how a church is doing and that kind of stuff. So it's, they're part of the church, but they're, they're not engaged with the congregation. And then the last one is called hierarchicalism. Try to say that. Use that in a sentence today three times. Hierarchical. And what that means is there's the church and there's a pastor, and then over these churches is somebody called a bishop, and then over these bishops is somebody called a cardinal, and then in some traditions, there's somebody over the cardinals called the pope. So that's a hierarchical view. What do we see here? Well, as a hierarchical person, I would look at this and go, Paul appointed elders. This is obviously hierarchical. Paul is acting as the cardinal over this area, and he's, opposing, he's, he's appointing bishops to be in these churches. So obviously, it's hierarchical, right? Or as a Presbyterian, I look at it and go, no, the word is presbytos. He's appointing elders in the churches. So this is the presbytery getting together and appointing these men to be elders in the churches. So as poor congregationalists, we're left out in the cold on this, aren't we? Oh, man we got to abandon congregationalism. I want to propose a vote to, to disband the congregational part of our Constitution. No, what do we do as a congregationalist? How, would, how do I read this? Well, hold on for a second. How, how old are these churches? Months? 
Are they prepared, are these new believers, these people who have just heard about the, the faith they have in Jesus Christ, who, by the way, don't have a stitch of the New Testament written for them yet, are they prepared, are they equipped, are they fitted to appoint elders in their churches? Paul hasn't written 1 Timothy where he says, this is the qualification of an elder. It hasn't happened yet. So Paul comes in and he says, okay, I want to be careful with this. I want to appoint men who are qualified for this. And so he appoints elders. Did he have to come back and reappoint elders every single time? Did he come back once a year and say, okay, you're still an elder, you're not? He did this for these brand new fledgling churches. When we helped plant a church in Illinois, we didn't start by having the congregation vote on elders. What we had was we had a, a steering committee, a, a group of people who were overseeing the planting of this church. And we were part of the steering committee. And then when the church began to stand up, they said, okay, well, you will be elders. And so we had a similar thing, and it's fully congregational. But the congregation wasn't ready at that point to do it because we hadn't really put the church together. So where do you start, chicken or egg, elder or congregation? Now they're doing congregationalism, but at some point you've got to start congregationalism. So my point here is you can read any of those. You know, Pick your favorite church polity and you can find it there. Um, the Bible is frustratingly, frustratingly unclear about church polity. It doesn't nail it down for us. And I think part of the reason is, is there's places where each one might make the most sense. And so it's just not that important. So we're going to stick with congregationalism. Is that all right if we do that? You have a voice in this, by the way. Congregational, you, you, can, you can choose this. So um, we're just going to go ahead and continue that. Now, what we mean by congregationalism, real quick, is we mean that your part, if you're a church member, if you're a member of this church, you're part of the leadership team. And you exercise your leadership role in this church three ways. By approving a yearly church budget, which we will do in a couple of weeks. So you'll be getting one in the mail and you need to review it and be ready for that because this is part of your leadership role in this church. You regularly, every year, you're gonna reaffirm the elders and the deacons. So we'll put a slate of elders and deacons before them and you exercise your leadership by looking at these men and women and say, yes, these people are qualified for this office. And, and I, I want them to be our leaders. I want to be uh, them to be the ones who are leading this congregation. And finally, by hiring and firing me. So when they called me to be a pastor, it's not like the elders went, yep, Tim's it. That happens. The, the elders did the search. They said, Tim, we would like you to, to be the candidate. And then they presented me to the congregation. And the congregation voted to, to make me the pastor. And so if I step over the line, the elders may bring to you a, a motion to get rid of me, too. That's what we mean by congregationalism. So that's just our application of that. What Paul did, though, is he appointed leaders for these churches. It wasn't sufficient for him to come through and make converts and say, here you go, and now you're on your own. He came through and he said, no, I want to make sure that these churches do well. I want to make sure they survive. And so I'm going to come in and I'm going to help them find the right men qualified to lead these congregations. I'm going to help appoint elders here. And as a matter of fact, when you read Timothy and Titus, they're written to pastors at churches and saying, here's how to find elders and here's how to appoint them. And he says, I sent you there in order to do this. So appointing elders, appointing leadership for a church is really important. And we'll come back to that at the end, but it's something that Paul was not content to just press on and head back to Antioch and go, okay, you're on your own. It's important that a church has leadership, has someone who's, who's over top of them and watching them. So that's what he does is he goes and he strengthens them and he commits them with, to the Lord in whom they believe with prayer and fasting. So this appointing of elders is not a popularity contest. 
It's not, who do I like best in this congregation? Oh, we'll make them an elder. It's done spiritually. It's done through prayer and fasting. It's done through saying, Lord, who do you want to lead this? And so that's the important part that, that he does there is through prayer and fasting, he commends them to the Lord. He says, now you're in the Lord's hands. I'm, I'm done with my mission here and I'm pressing on. So then we get to the last portion. We're going to wrap up this journey. Then they pressed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attila, Attilia. And from there they sailed to Antioch. And when they had commended to the grace, um, I'm sorry, they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. So what happens is they go back through those churches. They go back down to the coast right where they landed north of Cyprus. And then they hand to this other little city called Attilia. And guess what? It doesn't really matter. It was a port city. There's nothing significant about it. That was a place to sail out. They sail from Attilia back to Antioch, where they were commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. So do you remember the story at Antioch? The church was gathered. They were praying. They were fasting. There were prophets and teachers. And the Holy Spirit said, grab Paul, grab Barnabas, set him aside. I'm going to send him out on a mission. And now they return back to that church. They gather together and they tell them about what God had done. And, and the important thing here is it says they were commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. The work they had fulfilled. And how did they fulfill this work? By the grace of God. And you remember what the grace of God is. The grace of God is God's unmerited favor on us. God saying, I have decided to put my favor on Paul and Barnabas so that they could go and do this work. It's not because they were super great people who were just wonderful and the only ones that could do it. They did it. They succeeded because God's grace rested on them, because his favor rested on them, because he said, I love Paul and Barnabas. I'm going to be with them in their journey. So they did that. And because the grace of God was there, they fulfilled their work. Whatever they were commissioned to do, they completed it. In that short little journey, just around that one little part of the center part of, of Turkey, they completed it. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So this is huge. Remember what Antioch looked like? Do you remember when we talked about that? There were people from Cyprus and Cyrene. There were Jews from Antioch who lived there. There were Gentiles from all around the region. Cyprus is that island they were just on. Cyrene is modern-day Tripoli. So we had people from northern Africa, from an island off the coast of, um, of Turkey, and natives to the area, which is modern-day Syria, all in this church together. And when they come in, they say, we got great news. God has opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. God is welcoming the Gentiles in. The nations are coming in. Does that sound at all familiar? Jesus, at the beginning of the book of Acts, told his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. They're moving into the uttermost parts of the earth. And Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses, and those people are now coming in. He has opened a door of faith to them. They're beginning to come in. This is exactly what Jesus had said would happen. There's no surprise here. And so it is delightful to them that they're able to do this, that they're able to, to bring in the Gentiles. And then verse 28, and they spent no little time with the disciples. The church is the disciples. And, and that phrase, I love that phrase, no little time. Uh, that's called a litotes, literary phrase called litotes. And a litotes is the way to say something positive by saying it's not the negative. So, for example, uh, we would say, not bad. That's a little tease. It's not bad. What does that mean? 
Well, it means it's good. It's not bad, it's good. Or where you say, you won't be sorry. You're negating being sorry. You're saying that's not what's going to happen. So what it means is you're going to be glad. Or um, it's not uncommon to use elitities. And it means it's common. So that's one of the quirks of Paul's writing is he loves to do this. And he'll do this a couple more times. And I just, I kind of nerded out on that a little bit. I know, I'm sorry. But I just thought it was really cool that this is something. It's, it's one of those signature styles of Luke in his writing. It's his personality coming through as he writes. Is, is, you don't see other people doing this so much, but you see Paul will do it a handful of times. So that's what's going on is he says he didn't spend a little time with them. In other words, they spent a lot of time together. So that was the, that was the mission. That is the completion of Paul's mission. This week, I was reading through First Chronicles. You know how First Chronicles begins? Anybody remember that? Genealogies. Lots of genealogies. And then after it gets done with the genealogies, it lists all the people who David appointed to different offices. So lists of names. I got to confess to you, it was really hard for me to pay attention during that. It just is, it's hard to stick through that. You know why? Because it ain't about me. And so I don't care. <laughs> it's hard for me to pay attention when it ain't about me. What's going on in genealogies? What's going on in these David appointed all of these people? What's happening there? Who's the star of the show? Is it the people? Some of those names you will never hear again in the rest of the Bible. Who's the star of the show? It's about God. God said he would be faithful to his people. And look at this genealogy. This name, who I will never hear of again, was an actual physical human being who walked on this planet. He had a history. He had a family. He had hopes for the future. He built a farm. He had sheep. He did whatever he did. He was an actual real human being. And I just glazed my eyes right over him. It ain't about me. But it is God. It's about God being faithful to this person who we won't hear of again. And so that's why sometimes when you get to that part of the Bible, it's, it's easy to glaze over. We just went through this missionary journey about a bunch of places that you'll never see. And does anybody care? Anybody tune out? Anybody lose? Come on, be honest. You're, did your mind wander? Okay, what I want to tell you right now is now it's about you. Okay, this is where if you weren't paying attention now, I'm going to talk about you. So come on back. Uh, pay attention because now we're going to talk about us. And so it gets personal here. One of the things that happened was they made disciples, and we are disciples. So what we hear about making disciples here, this, this part's going to apply to us. It's really important for us to get this because this involves us. Now, as a side note, are we talking still about God? Yeah, who made the disciples? Who opened the door of faith to the Gentiles? Jesus did that. That's, so it's still about him, but this is where we come into involvement. So here's three things. Verses 21, 22, and 23 all say something about disciples. The word disciple is used four times in, these, in this short section. It's used over and over again. And up to, the point in the Bible, up to this point in Luke, it has been used, I think, once, maybe twice. And then all of a sudden, we get four of them clumped together. Luke's got a point here. So listen to what happens. In verse 21, they preached in Derby and they had made a lot of disciples. So how do you become a disciple of Jesus Christ? The first and foremost, the most important way you become a disciple of Jesus Christ is you hear the word of God. It's not me telling clever stories. It's not somebody using um, a, a neat illustration. It comes from the word of God, trusting in the word of God, hearing the word of God, believing the word of God. That's how you make disciples. 
So how did you become a disciple of Jesus Christ? At some point, in some way, the word of God was involved in it. My personal story was I had a friend at work who kept bugging me to, I got to know who Jesus is and you need to read the Bible. And I said, well, how, I, where do I, I don't, what do I do? Where do I start? He said, read the book of Acts. And so as I'm reading through the book of Acts, it suddenly dawned on me, this is real. This, this is really, this happened. This is real stuff. And I came to faith by reading the word of God. How did you come to faith? The word of God was involved somewhere in there. The important part about this is the word of God makes disciples. As Paul preached, he preached about Jesus. He preached from the scriptures. He preached to them who Jesus was. And that's what it means to become a disciple. Disciples are made by the preaching of the word of God. Verse 22, he strengthened them and he encouraged them. Here's the, here's the thing is disciples are made by the word of God, but to remain a disciple, to keep on discipling, you need to be strengthened and you need to be encouraged. So Paul didn't go to these cities and then go to every individual home of every individual person and talk to them individually and say, this is how I can strengthen and encourage you. What he did is when they gathered again, he spoke to the whole church together. That's what we see when he did at Antioch. It's, it's reasonable to assume that's what he did in, in Iconium, in Lystra, in Antioch, in Pamphylia, in all those areas. He gathered the church together and he encouraged them. The point is, you can't be a Christian alone for very long. Now, I'm preaching to the choir because you're all in church this morning. And those who aren't probably are sick. But it's important to remember that we need each other in this process. It's really easy when you become discouraged to not encourage yourself. It's really easy when you become weak to not strengthen yourself. But if you're part of a community, if you're part of a group of people, then you've got others who are going to stand beside you and encourage and strengthen you and tell you about how Jesus is working in their life and how their prayer life is, is really impactful and how they've really been enjoying reading the word. And you go, there's hope for me, even when I'm in this dry spell. And, and one of the problems is in America right now, um, we have a problem of loneliness. And one of the reasons I think we have a problem of loneliness is because church is not a central part of American culture. Even liberal, non-believing church that denies miracles is not a part of the central part of who we are anymore. And the great thing about church is we gather together and we have one thing in common, don't we? We are disciples of Jesus Christ. And we have a whole bunch we have un not in common. Un in common? Un in, in uncommon. I want to do a, a Lidotes at that point, but I can't think of one. We have a whole bunch that separates us as well. We, we have different income levels, different historical backgrounds. We, we believe in different political issues and, and all these things. And yet we come together and there's something common to our core, something that draws us together so that we can experience other people from different places and different times. The church has a central place there. Friday in the New York Times, there was an op-ed written by Arthur Brooks, and it's called How Loneliness is Tearing America Apart. And I just want to quote a couple of things that he, he talks about in it. He says, according to a recent large-scale survey from the healthcare center, or healthcare provider Cigna, most Americans suffer from strong feelings of loneliness and a lack of significance in their relationships. Nearly half say they sometimes or always feel alone or left out. 13% of Americans say, they, say that zero people know them well. The survey, which charts socialization using a common measure known as the UCLA loneliness scale, shows that loneliness is worse 
in each successive generation. In this huge populous and including or increasingly city-centered world, we're lonely. We're isolated. We're cut off. I, I, I think part of the problem is social media. We can diagnose that later. He continues on. Arthur Brooke continues on. He cites a book by Ben Sass called Them. And it's a recent book that Sass produced. And, and Arthur Brooks says, Sass worries even more, however, that a pervasive feeling of, uh, about a pervasive feeling of homelessness. Too many Americans don't have a place they think of as home, a thick community in which people know and look out for one another and invest in relations, relationships that are not transient. To adopt a phrase coined in Sports Illustrated, one might say we, are increasing, we increasingly lack that, quote, hometown gym on a Friday night feeling. So the idea is what, what Ben Sass is saying in his book is we lack thick communities. Our communities are paper thin. There's no depth of relationship. There's no knowing my neighbor is suffering right now, so let me go help my neighbor. There's waving at each other while you're at the post office box, the cluster box outside. But there's no depth to it. And so he points to this, this hometown gym on a, on a Friday night kind of feeling where you're, you're sitting there and talking about, you know, how's it going? What's going on with your car? I heard you were having car problems. You ever say that to your neighbor? You might not even know they have car. Do they have a car? What do they drive? I don't even know what they drive. So Brooks goes on. He says, Sass told me, he, he talked with Ben Sass. He says, Sass told me that moving back home and joining a gym on Friday aren't actually the point. Rather, the trick is learning to intentionally invest in the places where we actually live. So it doesn't mean I want you all to move back home and join a gym and hang out on Friday nights. If you go to the gym, that's good. I don't. Um, but the idea is, is investing in the community you find yourself in. Making the community a thick community because you're making it thick, not because somebody else is approaching you and chasing you down on that. It's about the neighbor I choose to be in the community I wind up calling my home. Now, what they didn't mention in this article, and I think, I think Ben Sass does mention it, is church is a, fun, is, a, is a primary place that can happen. And that ties into strengthening and encouraging the disciples. Is in our, our culture, remember the three enemies? The second enemy was the world. Our culture is driving us to loneliness, driving us to isolation, driving us to being independent of everybody else. I can stream whatever I want on television. I don't have to go to a movie theater. I can read my uh, social media stream and get just the news that I like. And I become isolated and siloed in this thing. But church is an opportunity to draw us together and draw us into what we would call a thick community. But don't look at me to make that happen. Don't look at your elders to make that happen. You know how that happens? We do that. We draw together. We look out for each other. We encourage each other. We strengthen each other. That's how we do it, is you do it. I do it. The person sitting next to you in the chair does it. We do it together. We make this a thick community. We make this more than shallow, more than just a stop, place to stop and wave and, and, and pass niceties to each other. We have so much more to offer than a gym on Friday night. We have hope of a, of a community that doesn't just last until uh, we move. It, we, we have hope of a community that doesn't just last until we die. We have hope of a community that lasts forever. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we get to be together in the end. 
That's the hope that we have. That's the, the, the encouragement that we have to share. And that's how disciples remain disciples. Is because we revolve around this central thing. The word is central. And community is thick. And I don't mean stupid. Thick as a brick. Have you ever heard that? Never mind. Um, now I've poisoned you. It, it means thick as in rich, as in depth. And then finally, what's the last thing they do? In verse 23... It says that Paul went back through those churches and appointed elders and then through prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord. So one of the ways that this community, this thick community is going to work, is going to continue to make disciples, is going to continue to strengthen and encourage disciples is if there's a layer of leadership. Elders are not dispensable parts of church, nor are they the central part of the church. They're not the most important thing. Their role is to equip and to encourage the church. You can't really have a New Testament church if you don't have some form of elders, some form of, of a leading group of people who are overseeing your church. If that's disposed with or dispensed with, you're in trouble. And I have seen small home church groups that, that say, well, we don't have a pastor. We don't have uh, elders. We just kind of get together and, and sing and, and share. And that sounds great. It sounds really super spiritual. It's not New Testament. Paul went back and appointed elders. And the thing is, when eldership is done right, the elders are a blessing to you. Because they're overseeing. What the Bible says is that your elders will give an account for your soul. That's a huge burden on an elder to say, everybody in my congregation, I'm going to have to stand before Jesus and explain why they are the way they are. I have to give an account for what I did to help them. That's, that's an intimidating thing, so that's why a lot of people don't want to be elders. But look at it from your perspective. You have someone who cares, who watches over you, and has account, who will give an account for your soul. Isn't that great? Somebody cares that much about you. God has appointed this office called elder to watch over you, to help you, to strengthen you, to encourage you, to help you grow as a disciple. And he will not let those people off easy. He will ask an accounting, how did you do with these folks? That's the exact message that you get from the Old Testament. When, when, Jesus, when God is mad at Israel, he says, your shepherds abused the flock. They took the milk, they took the wool for their own gain, and they didn't care what happened to the sheep. And so he judges them. So the idea that an elder is going to give an account for your soul means that Jesus is that invested in you. He cares that much about you, is that he will hold those who watch over you to account. It's not healthy, it's not good to be out away from the authority, the leadership, the rule of an elder. It's not good for you. It's not good for me to not have somebody over me watching me. Uh, remember Bob Burris, he preached a couple weeks ago. When Taft Avenue let him go, his first thought was, how do I get under the authority of some elders? It terrified him to be cut loose. You would think he would just go, oh, hey, I'm free. <laughs> I'm going to take a break. Um, he, he wanted to hurry up and find a church to plug in and to get under the authority of some elders. Because it was scary to be cut loose, to be that sheep that can wander off. So that's, that's the picture of the elders that we get, the, elder, the, or the disciples. Disciples are made by the word of God. They're made by the preaching, by the teaching, by the study, by the exposition of the word of God. But disciples need to be strengthened and need to be encouraged to remain disciples. And one of the ways that God does that is he gives elders to the church and commits you to the Lord.
to commit you to the Lord, to hand you over. He doesn't hand you over to me. He hands you over to himself. And so your elders are looking over you and saying, let's encourage them. Let's, let's commit them to the Lord through prayer and fasting. It's a spiritual endeavor that we do. It's part of our biggest call as, as elders in this church is to pray regularly for you. So know that God loves you so much. He has put somebody over you who we will hold account. He loves you so much that he's appointed somebody and he said, you make sure you pray for these people. He loves you so much that he said, I want you to regularly encourage and strengthen these folks. And he loves you so much he has given you the word. He's given you his Bible and he says, use that to strengthen and encourage them. Draw them closer to me. You see, I said this is about you. It's about you. This is great news for y'all. This is what God is going to do for you. This is what he has done for you. It's what he can continue to do for you. And where we're going next is we're going to look at the Psalms. And we're going to hear about Jesus who came for you. And that promise of why he came for you. What did he come to do for you? Why did he show up? So that's where we go next is in our Advent season, looking at the Advent Psalms of Christ. Um, the, 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 the Psalms, I picked four Psalms that really spoke clearly, the most clearly about who Jesus is. So with that in mind, let's pray. Lord, Paul commended, committed the churches that he had helped start to you. Put them in your hands, gave them over to you to say you rule over them. And he did it through prayer and fasting. And so, Lord, may we also remember to pray. And Lord, would you lead us to fast for more of you? That you would lead, that you would oversee, that you would guide and guard us. And Lord, I confess um, I need encouragement and I need strength. And Lord, having read that that article um, from the New York Times about loneliness and isolation in America, I confess to you I feel it in my own heart. I feel that, all, that, that same desire to isolate, to be alone, and to not engage with strangers. Uh, part of it's my natural shyness uh, and introversion. But Lord, also, I think there's an aspect to it that's being poisoned by a culture uh, that is embracing increased loneliness. So Lord, would you help me, um, cause me to be more outgoing and to engage? And Lord, would you make us a thick community, a community who loves and encourages each other? Lord, I want to pray for this congregation as it's congregationally ruled and we're coming up to a time to affirm our elders and deacons, to to recommit our leadership. Uh, Lord, would you lead us as a group to select the leaders who will lead us as a group? And uh, Lord, I I don't want to take that for granted to think that it just happens. Uh, Lord, would you make it happen in us so that you would, we would be committed to you and so that we would trust in you. Lord, again, I pray, please make us a thick community, a rich community, a community of of care and engagement, a generous community, a loving community. Fill us with the grace of, of God so that we might fulfill the calling to which we've been called. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.